to Psalm 68 in your Bible. Let's read through first 18 verses here of this psalm. For the choir director, a psalm of David, a song. Let God arise, let his enemies be scattered, and let those who hate him flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so drive them away. As wax melts before the fire, so let the wicked perish before God. But let the righteous be glad. Let them exult before God. Yes, let them rejoice with gladness. Sing to God. Sing praises to his name. Lift up a song for him who rides through the deserts or on the clouds, whose name is the Lord, and exult before him. A father of the fatherless and a judge for the widows is God in his holy habitation. God makes a home for the lonely He leads out the prisoners into prosperity. Only the rebellious dwell in a parched land. O God, when you went forth before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, Selah, the earth quaked, the heavens also dropped rain at the presence of God. Sinai itself quaked at the presence of God, the God of Israel. You shed abroad a plentiful rain, O God. You confirmed your inheritance when it was parched. Your creatures settled in it. You provided in your goodness for the poor, O God. The Lord gives the command. The women who proclaim the good tidings are a great host. Kings of armies flee, they flee, and she who remains at home will divide the spoil. When you lie down among the sheepfolds, you are like the wings of a dove covered with silver and its pinions with glistening gold. When the Almighty scattered the kings there, it was snowing in Zalmon. A mountain of God is the mountain of Bashan. A mountain of many peaks is the mountain of Bashan. Why do you look with envy, O mountains with many peaks, at the mountain which God has desired for his abode? Surely the Lord will dwell there forever. The chariots of God are myriads, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them as at Sinai in holiness. You have ascended on high. You have led captive your captives. You have received gifts among men even among the rebellious also, that the Lord may dwell there. May the Lord bless the reading of his word to our hearts. I uh, keep on thinking as I'm thinking about this psalm. Uh, Sort of like I was saying to my daughters yesterday as I looked out and the snow just seemed to come and keep on coming. Look at that. Look at that. When we say, look at that, we're talking about something amazing. And there is something amazing here. It's God. And we've been, we've begun reading through this psalm, studying through this psalm, but I think as we study through the scriptures, there are times where we get deeper in our study and focused and we just start to see things we didn't see before because we're taking more time. And I hope that's our experience here as we spend more time in Psalm 68. I want to just briefly give, as we've looked at this, if you haven't been with us, uh, an overview of what this psalm is about. And uh, as you look at the psalm, Uh, What is the big picture here? The big picture, I believe, is a psalm of uh, procession. There's a procession that's taking place where the ark of God is being moved from one location to Jerusalem, where it comes to dwell and stay. The ark of God symbolized the presence of God. And so wherever the ark went... It symbolized that God was going there. Now, we know from Scripture that God is omnipresent. God is everywhere. But when he was teaching his people that he was one God, he taught them 
in part by having one place where he was worshipped, one place where he locally manifested himself. And so when the children of Israel came out of Egypt, they started to see this cloud, this cloud that led them out of Egypt, the angel of the Lord in the cloud leading them out in triumph. But then that cloud, as it led them, eventually came to Mount Sinai. And then from Mount Sinai, God led his people eventually up to the promised land through the desert, certainly for a period of time as they rebelled against him, but eventually into the promised land. And then as they were in the promised land, eventually when Jerusalem was conquered, that was the place where God determined to dwell. That was his place, his holy habitation, and that's where this psalm is taking us. The procession probably didn't last very long. The song isn't very long, but the song recounts that history. And so verses 1 and 2 is called by some uh, the song of the ark. It's a reflection of what Moses prayed as the ark of God, the ark of the covenant, would set out. Let God arise, let his enemies be scattered, There's a call of uh, judgment upon his enemies. But then verse 3 and down through verse 6, there's a recollection of God leading his people in the clouds and a call to the people to rejoice in him. And there are statements, of course, about God's character and who he is that as they're called to praise, they then have something to latch their praises on as they think about God and how great he is, how transcendent he is as he rides through the clouds, but also how near to us he is, how he condescends. You can see some of those uh, words that indicate his condescension in verses 5 and 6. Now, verse 7 and down through verse 10 uh, seems to me, based on the mention of Sinai, God going forth before his people to Sinai, and then eventually an inheritance for the people is God going from Sinai and then to the land. Okay, that's verses 7 through 10. Verses 11 and down through verse 14 is a historic victory uh, based on timing in the land prior to Jerusalem even being conquered. But that amazing victory, we're going to look at it some tonight, was a demonstration of God's sovereignty, of God's hearing the the prayers of his people, and the victory that he provided for them in the land when they trusted in him. But then, verses 15 and down through verse 18, and I, I have wrestled with whether to end at verse 19 for this next section, partly because there's a selah after verse 19, but I, I, uh, I think I could be convinced either way because verse 19, uh, the, the content of it seems to go with either half, seems to be kind of a, a, a hinge on which the second uh, part of the psalm begins or the first ends. But in verses 15 down through verse 18 is God, after that historic victory, ascending to the place where he dwells. So when it says... Uh, In verse 18, you have ascended on high, that's God, moving, in a sense, toward that place where he is going to dwell and rule over his people. There's a song of victory, verses 19 and down through verse 23. There's uh, an expectation that God uh, would deal with his enemies, Uh, Verses 19 down through verse 23, even some real specific indications of his victory over them. But then in verses 24 down through verse 27, it's almost like there's there's a picture or a snapshot of the scene, the procession, as it's taking place. If this procession is a moving procession, they're singing, then if someone is looking on, what are they seeing? Verse 24 says, they have seen your procession, talking about the enemies of God. And the procession goes into the sanctuary. Verse 25, there are singers. 
There's a call to worship God, verse 26, and then the mention of the tribes. And we haven't gotten to these verses yet. Four tribes mentioned, representative of all of Israel. Benjamin, Judah, Zebulun, Naphtali, south and north. So the implication, it's all the tribes, but they're the tribes, the beginning and the end maybe of that procession. And then, uh, following that procession, there's an expectation that God, who has come to dwell there at Jerusalem and is enthroned there at Jerusalem, is now going to reign over his enemies, the nations, not just the ones he conquered in battle to come to Jerusalem, but all the nations. And so there's a a reference, verse 29, to the kings that will bring gifts, or the idea is tribute to him. Verse 31, envoys will come out of Egypt. Ethiopia will stretch out her hands to God. And then the final portion of this psalm is a, a song of a call to praise from the kingdoms of the earth to the Lord. And then there's really just a lifting up of the Lord, uh, again, of his presence in the clouds, verse 33, or the highest heavens, his mighty voice, verse 33, his majesty, his awesomeness. Look at that. Look at that. Would that we would look, just look at the God of the Bible. And I'm not ta- talking about beholding with our eyes, but seeing him through the eye of faith. There is majesty in this psalm. And the majesty does have to do with his, his victory and his transcendence, but it's also his condescension to his people, his love for his people. Uh, The majesty is seen in things like verse 7, God going forth before his people. You ever think about what that would look like if you were one of the children of Israel? To be leaving Egypt to be following a cloud or a fiery pillar depending upon the time of day? Imagine trying to explain that to somebody who didn't see it. What are you doing? What have you done? We sometimes look at the stories of the Bible and we, we, we te- we're so familiar with them that we forget how amazing they are. The picture in verses 7 and following is of a mighty, powerful God who is shaking the earth as he moves with his people. Notice what it says. It talks about him marching, verse 7, through the wilderness. And the result is the earth is quaking and the heavens are dropping blessings. And uh, the... Absence of the word rain there in verse 8 means it's in italics. Some have suggested that it's actually manna that is being dropped. And we could just, even though I don't think that's the reference, remember that that was a part of the picture. That God is, as he's leading his people, he's blessing them with manna. They can't go to Imart, whatever it is, to pick up food. Israel Mart? I don't know. They, they, they are receiving f- food from God, water from God, as he provides it at different times. But the God that they're following causes mountains to shake, the earth to shake. Notice what it says. Sinai itself at the presence of God, the God of Israel. So this is... God in his majesty, God in his glory, leading his people out in triumph over Egypt, but then bringing them into the land, blessing that land. If you look at verses 9 and 10, the rain that he provided, and I do believe uh, in verse 9, 
the word inheritance should refer uh, properly to the land itself, although sometimes in Scripture inheritance can refer to the people of God. Uh, Save your people, the psalmist says, Psalm 28, bless your inheritance. In that case, it refers to the people. But if the land is weary, end of the verse, parched, and God is preparing that land for his people to dwell in, then he's sending rain on it. Remember he said this is a land flowing with milk and honey. In order to have milk and honey, you need cows and bees. You need vegetation. You need lush if it's flowing with it. And so God is sending the rain. He's providing what the land needs. And then look at verse 10. That word that's translated creatures, if you were to take and compare translations, uh, there's a a challenge to uh, figuring out exactly what that word is because you'll find uh, community, um, uh, as you you, uh, think about the land and what is settling in it, is it a is it a community? Is it a congregation? One translation has. Is it creatures? Are these animals? Is this people? And uh, there's one uh, passage, Second Samuel, which talks about a troop of the Philistines, and it's the same word, the, the word troop. And so your congregation kind of catches it. Community kind of catches it. Creatures tends to make us think of animals. But if it's the troop, this is God on the march with his army. And so troop really fits. That this troop, which is on the move, doesn't have a place to dwell, now comes to a place where they can set up camp. Except the camp is already set up. Right, The buildings are already built. The vineyards are already planted. God has already made provision out of his goodness for his people. That's what he told them. You're going to come to a land where it's already prepared. And so they can just come in and settle. And God has provided for this group of people. And they're described in verse 10 as the poor You provided in your goodness for the poor or for the afflicted. And they were, they had been afflicted in Egypt. They were poor in terms of what they had coming out of Egypt. Remember, this is a nation of slaves. But as they came out, God not only blessed them with the spoil of the Egyptians, but he brought them into a place which was a land of plenty. And this is God fulfilling his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to bless his people, this people that had been afflicted for all these years in Egypt, and now they come into the land. What a gracious God. What a good God. Who wouldn't want to serve such a good God? Who wouldn't want to give their devotion, their total devotion, as Deuteronomy calls for, to the God of heaven? But it's interesting, between verses 10 and 11, there's a lot of history. Right? They came into the land, God provided for them, but then they failed to do all that he said in driving the other nations out. They didn't do what God said, and so the result was they came under the subjugation of these other Nations that were round about or even within, God allowed them at different times to be dominated by their enemies. And so you read through the book of Judges and you see, you recognize that God was serious when he told them to go into the land to deal with the people of the land. Their failure to do that resulted in the continuation of idols, idolatry in the land, which, as he warned them, became a snare to them. And so as they worshipped those other idols, and they uh, gave their worship rather than to this good and gracious God, they gave their worship to 
idols of wood and stone, precious metals, instead of the God, the majestic, glorious God who led them there. They found themselves in that same affliction. But, as you see many times in the book of Judges, they cried out to God. They called out to God, asking God to intervene because they recognized that their sins had brought them to a place where they, just as they were before, they were in slavery. Now they're under Jabin, the king of Canaan, and now Sisera with his chariots is dominating the landscape, and they can't live like they lived before, and instead they're now subject to this army and this military. But all it took was a cry to God, and God's response to that was a word. Look at verse 11. And I'm saying that that history in between is part of what we're seeing. Verse 11 is the turning point in that history. The Lord gives the command or the word. And what was that word? It was a word of deliverance. It was a word of promise. It was a word that demanded faith, which is what they needed to exercise in God. And if you turn over to Judges chapter 4, you'll see that word that came from God in a moment of their crisis and call out to God. Judges chapter 4. Deborah is the prophetess who is judging Israel, verse 4 tells us. Judges 4, 4, now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the sons of Israel came up to her for judgment. Now she sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam from Kedesh Naphtali, and said to him, Behold, the Lord, the God of Israel, has commanded, Go and march to Mount Tabor. And take with you 10,000 men from the sons of Naphtali and from the sons of Zebulun. I will draw out to you Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his many troops to the river Kishon, and I will give him into your hand. There's the word. The Lord gave the word. Why did he give the word? Because look back at verse 3. The sons of Israel cried out to the Lord, for he had 900 chariots, speaking of Jabin and Sisera, 900 iron chariots, and he oppressed the sons of Israel severely for 20 years. So after 20 years, they cry out to God. God gives a word, but they've got to act on the word. God's not just going to clear out their enemies. They have to exercise faith. And so the word came through a prophetess. Barak hears the word. But he's not fully confident. Look at verse 8. Then Barak said to her, If you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. He had to have the confidence of this woman who had given this word from God. In other words, he had to have her with him to assure him. And as a result of that, there was a consequence for him. She said, verse 9, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the honor shall not be yours on the journey that you're about to take, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hands of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kedesh. Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali together to Kedesh, and 10,000 men went up with him. Deborah also went up with him. Now, the story is told... As it's told, we're told some of the details of how eventually Sisera is going to be dealt with. That's why Heber, verse 11, is mentioned. It says, Heber the Kenite had separated himself from the Kenites, from the sons of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses. So there's a connection between this man and Israel historically. It says, and he had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zaananim which is near Kadesh. Then, verse 12, they told Sisera that Barak, 
the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor. As I uh, understand, Mount Tabor, or Tabor, aside from any uh, New Testament connections, this mountain was a place that had a plain high up, and it could be easily defended. It was a place where a fortress could be uh, defended very easily against an enemy. And so when it is said that Barak had gone up to Mount Tabor, the possible assumption, I think it's a likely assumption on the part of Sisera, is that he's going up there to strengthen himself in terms of a fortress so that somehow he would not have to serve and the people up there would not have to serve uh, Sisera. That's why, verse 13, Sisera uh, calls together his chariots. Verse 13, Sisera called together all his chariots, 900 iron chariots, and all the people who were with him from Harosheth Hagoyim to the river Kaishan. Now, uh, sometimes when you have details like this geographically without a map in front of you, it's a little challenging. Um, we're talking about the region that is west of the Sea of Galilee. We're talking about a mountain, but a river runs through a valley. And so based on the details here, he comes to that river, Kaishan, and based on the timing, some have suggested the timing was such, the river had overflowed, and the result was it really wasn't ideal for taking chariots through because of the moist soil. Okay. Keep on reading. Verse 14, Deborah said to Barak, Arise, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Behold, the Lord has gone out before you. Now, we saw that in the psalm, right? The Lord went out before Israel. He had led them out. He went out first. It's a beautiful explanation of our God leading us as he, one, one way to put it is he sallied forth. He leaped out into the battle as the leader of the army, and his people were just to follow behind. The Lord, verse 14, has gone out before you. So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. The Lord, notice the emphasis on who is winning this battle, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. And Sisera alighted from his chariot and fled away on foot. But Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Harosheth Hagoyim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not even one was left. Okay, so in terms of the battle, forget about Sisera for a moment. In terms of the battle, this was a complete rout. And all these chariots that would serve the enemy were of no use. God gave them the victory that day. 10,000 men. Naphtali and Zebulun. That becomes significant. Not because they were the only ones, but they were the ones who were called, but there were others who just sat by the wayside. Didn't participate in the battle. One city even got cursed for their failure to join in with Israel as they fought against their enemy. But let's read about Sisera. Sisera, verse 17, fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite, which we've been introduced to in verse 11. For there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber, the Kenite. Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my master, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. And he turned aside to her in the tent, and she covered him with a rug. He said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a bottle of milk and gave him a drink, and then she covered him. He said to her, Stand in the doorway of the tent, and it shall be if anyone comes and inquires of you and says, Is there anyone here that you shall say no? So he's safe. 
<laughs> he just didn't know whose tent he came into. Verse 21, but Jael, Heber's wife, took a tent peg and seized a hammer in her hand and went secretly to him and drove the peg into his temple and it went through into the ground for he was sound asleep and exhausted, so he died. Behold, as Barak pursued Sisera, Jael came out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. And he entered with her, and behold, Sisera was lying dead with the tent peg in his temple. Now, what did God say through Deborah, verse 9? I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the honor shall not be yours on the journey that you're about to take, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hands of a woman. The precision of God's word that came true within that short amount of time. God's word is true. His word is true. And whether it's a circumstance where he gives a word of prophecy or just a statement about the world, or the devil, or whatever it may be. God's word is true. God speaks the truth. He always speaks the truth. You can depend upon it. Barak really had no reason, if he was thinking about God and who God is, to, go, to, to not go out on his own just at the word that... Uh, Deborah had given him. When God's word came, God's word is true. When God's word came, it's just as good as if the victory has been declared. Now turn back to the psalm for a moment. Look at verse 11. The Lord gives the word. The women who proclaim the good tidings are a great host. What is that referring to? It's referring to the song of victory. The song of victory following just the word from God. In fact, as you look through the the words here in verses 11 down through verse 14, when there's this victory recounted, and we'll look back again at Judges, but notice what it says. The Lord gives the word or the command, the women who proclaim the good tidings are a great host. Kings of armies flee, they flee, and she who remains at home will divide the spoil. We'll talk about verse 13, but again, verse 14, when the Almighty scattered the kings there, it was snowing in Zalmon. Where's Barak? Where's Zebulun? Where's Naphtali? They were instrumental, but they weren't the ultimate cause. They were servants of God, but God was sovereign over this battle. And it's God who receives the glory. God is the one who sallied forth. He leapt into the battle. He defeated the enemy, and he did exactly what he said. And then the songs of victory and the spoils came. The songs of victory, I believe, is the reference point to verse 11. The women who proclaim the good tidings are a great host. Remember Miriam after the battle, or after the Lord defeated the Egyptians at the Red Sea. It was Miriam who took her tambourine, and there was rejoicing. Remember as David was instrumental in defeating Goliath and Israel won the battle that day. The women were singing, remember, David's praises. They should have been singing the Lord's praises. But it was a, a testimony to the greatness of God, the glory of God here that the women are proclaiming good tidings and talking about what's taking place as the kings flee and the spoils are shared. Turn, if you would, back to Judges. The song that is sung in chapter 5, let's not miss the end of chapter 4. So God subdued on that day Jabin the king of Canaan before the sons of Israel. The hand of the sons of Israel pressed heavier and heavier upon Jabin the king of Canaan until they had destroyed Jabin the king of Canaan. Then Deborah and Barak the son of Abinoam sang on that day, sang... 
that the leaders led in Israel, that the people volunteered. Bless the Lord. Hear, O kings, give ear, O rulers. I to the Lord, I will sing. I will sing praise to the Lord, the God of Israel. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the field of Edom, the earth quaked, the heavens also dripped, even the clouds drip water. The mountains quaked at the presence of the Lord, this Sinai at the presence of the Lord, the God of Israel. You ever heard that before? That is a picture of God coming from Sinai, marching through the wilderness, shaking the earth, dropping blessings from the heaven, but in this case, he's coming to the aid of his people and he's winning a battle for them. And we have Deborah's song here to describe what takes place. I'm going to skip down to verse 12. Awake, awake, Deborah. Awake, wake, sing a song, arise, Barak, and take away your captives, O son of Abinoam. Then survivors came down to the nobles. The people of the Lord came down to me as warriors. From Ephraim, those whose root is in Amalek, came down, following you, Benjamin, with your peoples. From Maker, commanders came down. And from Zebulun, those who wield the staff of office. The princes of Issachar were with Deborah. As was Issachar, so was Barak. Into the valley they rushed at his heels. That gives you a little insight as to what's taking place because they came, remember, down from the mountain. They've got Zebulun and Naphtali, but now there are others joining with, according to the song here. They rushed at Barak's heels into the valley as they engaged the enemy, but look at the end of verse 15. Among the divisions of Reuben, there were great resolves of heart. Why did you sit among the sheepfolds to hear the piping for the flocks? Among the divisions of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. There were people who didn't go into this battle. Now, it's, you know, I can imagine even trying to make sense of what's taking place right now over in Ukraine. Because there's battle being fought there people fighting here and there. There's lots of different fronts on which this battle is being fought. In this case, you've got peoples joining in. And yes, a battle is taking place, but it's, it's hard to figure out exactly what's going on. We saw it in the previous chapter, but the song is giving more of the details. The song is telling us that yes, there were other tribes involved, but Reuben didn't get involved. And instead of getting involved, they're sitting among the sheepfolds. And they're thinking. There's a searching of their own heart, verse 16 says. Look at verse 17. Gilead remained across the Jordan. And why did Dan stay in ships? Asher sat at the seashore and remained by its landings. But not Zebulun. Zebulun, verse 18, was a people who despised their lives even to death, and Naphtali also in the high places of the field. In other words, even though they were significantly outnumbered and had no chariots, Zebulun, verse 18, and Naphtali didn't think much of their life. They went into the battle in spite of being outnumbered. This is one of those cases where just like Gideon in the 300, Israel was outnumbered, but God with his small army was able to defeat a mighty army because God was with them. And yes, kings also came and fought. Verse 19, we're told that. That's a detail that's referenced in the psalm. Verse 19, the kings came and fought, then fought the kings of Canaan at Taanach near the waters of Megiddo. They took no plunder in silver. The stars fought from heaven from their courses. They fought against Sisera. The torrent of Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon. That's a reference to that river that was likely overflowed at this time. And when the battle was taking place, the river was a part of the reason or part of the the, the way in which Israel won the battle. doesn't say exactly, but there's an indication that that river was involved. Oh, oh my soul, Deborah says, verse 21, march on with strength. 
Then the horse's hoofs beat from the dashing, the dashing of his valiant steeds. Curse morose, said the angel of the Lord. Utterly curse its inhabitants, because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the warriors. There certainly is, within this story, a distinguishing of those who are on the Lord's side and those who are not. Even among the people of God. Who is on the Lord's side? Who will serve the king? Naphtali will. Zebulun will. Others watching those tribes go in gained courage and did as well. But there were people, people in Israel, the people of God, who sat by and did nothing. There's certainly an application there for the church. Is there not? God is in control. We know that he is going to win the victory, but he does use his people. And his people's willingness and service is how he works. And in the case of Morose, they didn't help at all. They were not even a part of the picture. Just like when Paul says in the end of 1 Corinthians, if anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be cursed. There's a curse on a city that doesn't come to the help and service of the Lord. There's a warning here. Even in the victory of God. Now verse 24 goes on to describe the victory in terms of that primary warrior. Verse 24, most blessed of women is Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. Most blessed is she of the women in the tent. He asked for water. She gave him milk in a magnificent bowl. She brought him curds. She reached out her hand for the tent peg and her right hand for the workman's hammer, and she struck Sisera. She smashed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet he bowed. He fell. He lay. Between her feet he bowed. He fell. Where he bowed, there he fell dead. And then the song ends with a look at the mother of Sisera, who thinks instead of coming back soon because he won the battle, maybe they're dividing the spoil. Out of the window, verse 28, she looked and lamented, the mother of Sisera through the lattice. Why does his chariot delay in coming? Why do the hoofbeats of his chariots tarry? Her wise princesses would answer. Remember, she's some kind of nobility. Indeed, she repeats her words to herself. Verse 30, are they not finding, are they not dividing the spoil, a maiden, two maidens for every warrior to Sisera, a spoil of dyed work, a spoil of dyed work embroidered? Dyed work of double embroidery on the neck of the spoiler? In other words, maybe she's thinking that he's got something for her that he's going to bring back, sort of a royal piece of uh, embroidery that she can then wear. But that's not the case at all because he's dead. God has won the victory. And Deborah's prayer, Deborah's song, is that all the enemies would perish like him. Thus let all your enemies perish, O Lord. But let those who love him like, be like the rising of the sun in its might. And the land was undisturbed for 40 years. Turn, if you would, back to Psalm 68. I know we need to wrap it up and be finished here tonight, but look at verse 12. Remember we read about the kings who came to the battle, the tribes that didn't, but God, of course, won Anyway, kings of armies flee, they flee, and she who remains at home will divide the spoil. So what God does after he gives the command and sallies forth before his people and wins the battle with those who are willing, those who will serve, following that victory come the spoils. The spoils are for those who are back home. 
The mother of Sisera was expecting them. They didn't come to her, but instead they came to the children of Israel. They came to those people, and as she was remaining at home expecting her husband to return, not only did he return, but he brought her enough stuff, and I'm speaking of an individual sort of typical Israelite woman, that as he came home, he had enough for her and to spare. Because it says, she who remains at home will divide the spoil, not just receive the spoil, but divide it, part it out, apportion it to others. Now, if you look at verse 13, there's a reference, remember, to Reuben sitting in the sheepfolds waiting for the piping of the flocks. Uh, if you were to look through the different translations, this is one of those verses that's translated differently, trying to figure out exactly what the psalmist is saying here. I'm going to read a translation. I believe this is the Net Bible. The kings of armies, they flee, they flee. The women at home divide the spoil, though you men lie among the sheepfolds. In other words, it's referencing that the spoils are distributed and the men who are among the sheepfolds had nothing to do with it. In fact, it's a testament to their testimony to their cowardice that they would not enter into the battle. But what kind of spoil is this? What, you know, remember the mother of Sisera? She's expecting some kind of a beautiful work of embroidery, royal embroidery. This translation has the wings of a dove covered with silver, its pinions with shimmering gold. Okay, so we've got to use your imagination here, but some kind of a piece of spoil, someone who took the time to embroider, but through metalworking used silver and gold for this piece of clothing. That's the wealth that is obtained in this battle that God is now granting to Israel. That's the way I would interpret it, is this is some kind of a trophy. This beautiful piece of embroidered work is a testimony to the great victory of God. It's one of the pieces that came back, and that's the spoils of battle. When they come back, there's, a, of course, a great rejoicing based on the victory being won. But when the spoils are distributed, and then they become part of the, the legacy of that military and are hung up, in some cases, in museums or in, in other places, maybe the king's hall, it's a place of, of honor. Remember, that that came from that battle. But in this case, it's not a testimony to Barak. It's not even a testimony to Deborah or Zebulun or Naphtali. This is the Lord. The Lord gave the command. The women started proclaiming the victory. The kings are fleeing. The spoil, such spoil is being given. And then it's snowing. Verse 14, it's snowing. And that's where this section ends. Scattering of the kings, and it's snowing there. So what's the significance? Why the mention after the victory and the spoils is there snow? One possible translation of this verse is, you, Almighty, scattered the kings there, and you were the one who caused it to snow. Of course, we know God caused it to snow. Thank you, Lord, for the snow we receive. There seems to be a play on the location that's mentioned in verse 14. Zalmon is a mountain uh, that was volcanic, as I studied this and tried to make some sense out of it and got a lot of help from different commentaries, but this volcanic mountain, if you were to look at it, and any trees that were growing on it, it would seem to be dark because of the, vol- the fact that it was volcanic and the trees that grew up in that soil. Uh, I think one of the trees is called a black oak. 
Stay with me. So you've got a, a dark mountain, but then snow is falling on it. Almost like the darkness is going away. See the picture? Jabin, the king of Canaan, and Sisera had been dominating Israel for 20 years. And that period of darkness pervaded the land. But God gave a word. He sallied forth. He won the victory. And as the light came in, the darkness starts to disappear. The snow you could say, is somewhat of a signal. In a poetic way, the psalmist is drawing attention to the light, to the change in the land, no longer darkness, now light. That's what God does. This is his victory on behalf of his people when they cried out to him. And he brought... He brought victory for them. Yes, he used them as they served him. But there was no way that they would have been able to defeat this enemy. How did he do it? He did it in part through jail in her tent with a tent peg. And he did it with a river that was probably overflowed. Kings who didn't know the territory, terrain. However, we know that God was in control and he brought the victory that day. There's majesty when we think about, when we see our God in his glory and what he does, there's majesty. This is just one of his victories. Just one. It's one that I had not paid as much attention to, but when you have the reference, the obvious allusions in the psalm, and you look back, you see... Oh, this is why the psalmist wanted to include this one. It was a glorious one with a song. What a great God. Look at that and praise him. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the precious treasure that we have in our hands. Grant us grace, Lord, to read it, to obey it. Help us, Lord, to look at you, our great God, in your word, deepen our love, our knowledge of you. We pray that you would exalt your name through our lives. Father, we pray for grace, even as we reflected on the story in Judges, to be among those who are serving you. To be among those who are willing, by faith, to fight and to find your approval your blessing. Help us, we pray. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take our hymnals. Turn to number 537. Let's stand together and sing tonight.